good morning. Welcome. Um, let's see, in chapter 6, verse 20 of this epistle to the Hebrews, the author calls Jesus um, a forerunner for us. He calls Jesus, a very unique title, a forerunner. Jesus is ahead of the pack, so to speak. He has gone before us on the road that we currently take. Now, where does this road on which we are all traveling ultimately end up? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. Here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. The end of the road is... Mount Zion in heaven, the city of the living God. So in other words, the whole of our lives on earth is a pilgrimage, an exodus. We have set forth out of the world. We have been delivered from Egypt, as it were. And we are trekking across the wilderness in tents, always moving until we come to the promised land. And the thing that we need most on our journey, that really this epistle of Hebrews is all about, is endurance. The thing we need most on our journey is endurance. That is, to keep on keeping on. The ability to weather disappointment. The ability to weather doubt and even disaster along the way. Now, why endurance? Why is this the one thing that we need above all others? Because the reward lies at the end of the road, either through death or until the Lord Jesus returns. As we talked about last week, Romans chapter 8, verse 24, the Apostle Paul says that we are saved in hope. The promises are not obtained in this life. The substance of salvation is not given to us here and now. And if we are to have it, we must persevere until the end. We must keep on keeping on. Now, where does this endurance come from? Where do we gather what we need to keep on moving? This was the subject of our sermon last week. As the author of Hebrews says, it comes from this, our assembly together. When we come together as a church, we are given a foretaste of the end. The city to come here and now, our text last week, Hebrews 12, 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So no longer are you on your way, but you have come. In the flesh, we are here on earth, but in the spirit, we are gathered in heaven before the throne of God. And when we come together, we are nourished by the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, as the author says in chapter 6, verse 5. And having tasted that power, the future that awaits us, we are then given the endurance, braced with the strength that we need to then enter back into the present. Now, how is this all possible? It's made possible by Jesus, our forerunner. He has gone before us. He has inaugurated a new and living way through which we can enter the city that is to come. Here, in our gathering, 
and in the end when the road is finished. Through the blood of Jesus, or through his blood rather, Jesus has entered the most holy place and he welcomes us in. And so that's the topic of our sermon this morning, the mediation and the priesthood of Jesus. So we'll begin as we did last week in Exodus. We'll move then to Hebrews because we need to lay that foundation first in Exodus. Then we can build on that in Hebrews. And then we can wrap things up um, with some conclusions about um, our worship gathering. So again, um, ground zero here is Mount Sinai. Ground zero is Mount Sinai. Now, as we noted last week, Israel's assembly at the foot of Mount Sinai was the point of their deliverance from Egypt. The story of the Exodus does not end on the shores of the Red Sea, with Pharaoh and his armies drowned in a watery grave. Rather, it culminates, the story does, in a corporate worship service. God descending upon the mountain and inviting his people to draw near to him in service. So as imposing as, as, and as threatening as Sinai was, the voice that was so terrible they didn't want to hear it anymore, the thick darkness and gloom, as terrible as that experience was, as terrifying rather, Sinai was nevertheless the meeting place of God and his people. And the narrative of Exodus comes to a close emphasizing that fact. God enters into covenant relationship with Israel. There's the sacrifice, and then Moses sprinkles blood on the altar, and he sprinkles blood on the people. They enter into covenant with God, and then after that, a special group from among the people are invited up the mountain. And the passage reads, next, next slide please, it's Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11. It says, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 70 of the elders of Israel. And it says, And they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate and drank. This is the culmination of their deliverance from Egypt. Pharaoh is judged. The people are delivered through the waters. They meet with him at the foot of Mount Sinai. And this special group is invited up to eat and to drink in the presence of God. So that assembly there, it culminates in a meal. That is in communion with God. And again, nothing quite like this has happened up to this point in the biblical narrative. These representatives of Israel are granted extraordinary access to eat and drink in God's presence. I love that phrase, yet he did not stretch out his hand against them. They were welcomed into his presence. So Israel meets with God on Mount Sinai. But Israel cannot stay on the mountain. God promised many centuries ago to give their forefathers 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a good land flowing with milk and honey. And Israel had yet to take that land. Sinai was not the destination. The land of Canaan was. And so rather than leave God's presence behind at Mount Sinai, God promises to travel with the people in the tabernacle. Next slide, please. The tabernacle, as you'll see there, was basically an ornate tent. And God traveled around in the tabernacle just as Israel traveled around in their own tents. And what the tabernacle does is it takes that event, that encounter with God on Sinai, and it institutionalizes it. The tabernacle is like a movable mountain. It takes Sinai and it turns it to a tent that can accommodate Israel on its journey. Now, after that day of assembly around Sinai, the Exodus narrative then slows down quite a bit, and it focuses almost entirely upon the tabernacle and the things that are done there and how it's supposed to happen. So chapters 25 through 31 of Exodus provide the instructions for the tabernacle. God tells Moses very specifically, this is how things are going to be. And then in chapters 35 through 40, we have the construction of the tabernacle detailed for us. And Exodus comes to a close with the tabernacle's completion and then the divine glory descending upon the tabernacle and inhabiting it. It says God's presence was so overpowering and palpable or, or, uh, that, that Moses couldn't even enter in. He had to stay back. So the tabernacle is God's dwelling on earth. It's his home away from home, as it were. Now another name that the scriptures consistently use for the tabernacle, which just means sacred tent, is the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. It was the one place where the nation of Israel was guaranteed to meet with God. They could come to the tent of meeting and there encounter him. Speaking to Moses about the tabernacle, God says the following. Next slide, please. This is Exodus 29, verses 43 through 46. It says, I will meet there <clears throat> excuse me, with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated by my glory. <clears throat> consecrated just means to, to make something holy. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. So the tabernacle is a miniature architectural version of Mount Sinai, the place on earth where God's presence rests. And it travels with Israel through the wilderness and ultimately into the promised land. Therefore, the tabernacle, just like any holy space, or just like the Sinai, rather, is a holy space. Just like Sinai, the tabernacle was divided into three zones of increasing holiness. Next slide, please. Here's a cheesy diagram I found in one of the books. First, there's the tabernacle courtyard. Um, and that corresponds to the base of Mount Sinai where Israel was camped. 
And second, there's the holy place. That's into the actual tent itself. And only the priest had access to the holy place. And of course, that corresponds to the mountain itself, that only the elders of Israel could ascend. And then lastly, in the tabernacle, there is the most holy place. So it's almost a tent within a tent. And only the high priest had access to the most holy place, and that once a year. He would go in, make sacrifice, and then he would leave. And that most holy place in the tabernacle corresponds to the summit of Mount Sinai, where only Moses could approach where God's presence dwelt. So the tabernacle, just like Sinai, just like the temple after it, housed God's holy presence. But remember, God's presence is as dangerous as it is good for the nation. In order to dwell among his people, they must be holy as he is holy. Remember, up to this point in the scriptures, nothing has happened according to this magnitude. God coming so near and so close to his people. For that to happen, for that to work, they had to be holy. The only problem, however, is that the people are not holy. So along with the tabernacle, where God comes near to his people, he institutes the priesthood, he institutes the sacrificial system, the purity laws, and the moral commandments. So he institutes this special class of people who are to serve God in the temple by offering up sacrifices, by making sure Israel obeys these purity laws, and then also the moral commandments. And through these means, Israel would be made clean. Right? Their defilement and their unholiness could be taken away, and therefore they could be fit to enter into God's presence. They could draw near to him, and it would be a matter of joy rather than fear or terror. Now, this is a foreign concept to us. We're so far removed from these ideas of uh, cleanness and uncleanness, of ritual purity, and so on and so forth. But think of it, what's happening here at the tabernacle, like a scientist who's working near uh, a nuclear reactor, or a scientist who's experimenting on a highly infectious disease. In both cases, the one thing that that scientist cannot do is enter in on their own terms. That would mean death. In order to draw near to something that dangerous and live, the scientist has to perform the safety protocols, all the cleansing and washings, the proper equipment, so on and so forth, to enter into that place. They would have to perform those safety protocols perfectly. And one small step could spell the end, right? It could be it for that person. So just as our scientist has to pass through those various cleansing rituals to approach an infectious disease or a nuclear reactor, so Israel, in the same manner, was given these highly scripted rituals, ceremonies, and sacrifices to make it safe for them to be in God's good but dangerous presence. And the nearer that you got to God's presence, the holier you had to be. 
So the priests were consecrated to God, and they were holier than the people. And therefore, only the people could be in the tabernacle, but the priests could be in the holy place. And still holier than the priests was the high priest. He was consecrated to such a degree that he could enter even the most holy place. So there's these levels as you approach God, greater requirements of holiness to draw near to him. So the message of the tabernacle, of the priesthood, of all these scripted rituals of entry, the message was God cannot be approached haphazardly or however one pleases, but only through the means that he has prescribed. And if you move on from Scripture at this point, you'll find that any time people, priests or otherwise, deviate from the means that God has prescribed, things don't go well for them. Uzziah tried to offer incense. He bypassed the priesthood. He became proud, the Scripture says, and he went into the temple to perform services that he shouldn't have, and he was struck with leprosy. Aaron's sons, who got to ascend the mountain, Nadab and Abihu, they were consumed by fire because they authored unauthorized incense and so on and so forth. So from our perspective, all this can seem quite harsh and remote. right? All these rules and restrictions, all these terrible judgments if you go wrong. But in reality, it's quite the opposite. God drawing near to Israel in this manner is a remarkable act of hospitality. God wants to be near His people. And the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices are not so He can keep them away from Him. It's so that He can draw them near. He gives them these things so that it's safe for them. They just have to follow them. They have to do their best. And even if they sin, right? Even if they mess up, that's what the sacrifices are for. They can be atoned and, and enter in. And they can have uh, fellowship with God. It's an act of hospitality. God wants to be with His people. So that's uh, a very basic understanding of what <clears throat> the tabernacle is and what all these other confusing things in Exodus and Numbers are about. It's so that God can be with His people and so that it can be safe for them. So now what I want to do is take that understanding and go to Hebrews, right? Because we need that if we're going to understand anything that he's saying. And central to the argument that the author of Hebrews makes is that the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrifices are copies or shadows of the real thing. They are copies or shadows of the real thing. Regarding them, in chapter 8, verse 9, he says that they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And then he quotes from Exodus, chapter 25, verse 40. Next slide, please. Hebrews 8, 5. It says, Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Make all things according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So in other words, what Moses saw 
when he ascended past the camp of Israel, past the elders of Israel, into the very presence of God, was the real thing. He saw the heavenly tabernacle. He saw God's true dwelling place. And he was instructed to make an earthly replica of it. Follow, be careful to do according to the pattern that you have seen. So hence, the tabernacle, the earthly tent structure in the midst of Israel was a copy and a shadow of the heavenly reality, of the real thing. Now, why is this important? Well, because the author says, if there's ever going to be redemption, meaning if there is ever going to be a true sacrifice, which enables us to truly enter into God's presence, it has to happen in the real thing, the heavenly reality, and not the copy. If there's ever going to be redemption, it has to happen in the real thing. Now, he makes this explicit. Next slide, please. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. It has a shadow of good things to come, but not the very form. So the animal sacrifices performed by the priest in the tabernacle were pretend, so to speak. They were make-believe, like when a son sees his father working, and he goes and gets his toy wrench and his toy screwdriver. The real thing was up above. Israel and the tabernacle was down below. Thus, the sacrifices that were offered in the earthly tabernacle, could not ultimately deal with sin. They couldn't actually take away sin and therefore allow us to truly enter into God's presence. Hebrews 10.4, he says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Because listen, if, an, if animal blood, the sacrifice of a bull or a goat or whatever, if that could cleanse our hearts, then sacrifices would not need to be offered continually. There would need to be one sacrifice because we'd be cleansed and we could enter into God's presence. However, sacrifices were offered year after year, day after day, for Israelite after Israelite. Instead, he says, all these sacrifices were a reminder of sins year by year. It's chapter 10, verse 3. It was a reminder. So rather than actually getting the job done, the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices were pointing beyond themselves. They were witnessing to something greater. And Jesus is that something greater. If the institutions of the old covenant were merely a shadow, he is the reality. They are fulfilled in him. Thus, the author, he proceeds to make a series of contrasts. Jesus is not an earthly priest who ministered in an earthly tabernacle according to the priesthood or the Levitical priesthood. Remember Aaron, he was the first priest, and it, from him came the tribe of Levi, the Levitical order. Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He was uh, from the tribe of Judah. 
Rather, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus was a heavenly priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, what's the difference? Well, he says the difference is death. Earthly priests ministered for a time, and then they passed away. Jesus, however, continues forever and holds his priesthood forever. Hebrews 7.24 So, earthly priests ministered in the earthly tabernacle, which was the shadow. Jesus, however, and this is central to what the author of Hebrews wants us to know, Jesus ministers in the real thing, in heaven itself. He says, chapter 9, verse 11, Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, and he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. So Aaron and his sons played pretend with their toy wrenches and screwdrivers. Jesus did the real thing, forever ministering in the true holy place above. And he enters into God's presence, not through the blood of bulls and calves, but through his own blood. Again, to enter into God's presence, even the courtyard itself, if you were Israelite, you'd have to offer a sacrifice. You'd have to offer a guilt offering outside of the courtyard, and then you could enter in. And the priest, they would have to offer sacrifices before they could enter the holy place. And then the high priest would have to enter sacrifices before he could enter the most holy place. You enter into God's presence through sacrifice, through blood. And what he's saying is that Jesus hasn't done this with the blood of an animal, but with his own blood. Because again, what use is the blood of animals to remove the stain of sin? It's merely a reminder that something greater is needed. And in Hebrews chapter 10, the first half, the author quotes Psalm 40, demonstrating that God desires something greater than the slaughter of a sacrificial animal. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired, the psalm reads. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Psalm 40, verse 6. Well, what does God require? What is it that He desires that enables one to enter into His presence? Next slide, please. Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. What takes away sin is not the blood of an ignorant beast, but willful and loving obedience. God does not desire the death of animals, but life as it was meant to be lived. And so once a year, the high priest entered into the holy place, entered into the inner sanctuary, and made atonement for the people. He entered through the blood of a sacrificial animal. And he took it, and there in the midst of the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, which was metaphorically described as the footstool of God's feet where his true throne was in heaven, but his feet rested upon the Ark of the Covenant. 
And so the priest would enter in, and he would sprinkle the blood of that animal upon the Ark of the Covenant. And what that would do was it would cleanse the temple or the tabernacle from defilement, and it would cleanse the entire nation. And so the author of Hebrews says, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heavens, he's referring to the earthly tabernacle, to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So Jesus, our high priest, did not enter into the earthly imitation, but the heavenly reality, the very presence of God, and he put away sin, not with the offering of a sacrificial animal, but the sacrifice of himself. And so Jesus and the new covenant that has been inaugurated in him is superior to the old covenant in every way. Jesus is the true high priest to which Aaron and his sons merely pointed. Jesus entered the true tabernacle in heaven, of which the earthly tabernacle was only a copy. He offered up his own life in obedience to the Father, in the shedding of his own blood, of which the blood of bulls and goats was merely a pale imitation. And thus, having obtained eternal redemption for his people, the earthly priesthood, the earthly tabernacle, the sacrifice of animals are rendered null and void. The earthly shadow has served its purpose, and now it gives way to the heavenly reality. So hence, it's not that our worship is without a tabernacle, that it's without a priesthood, or that it's without sacrifice. Those things are very much still in order. However, it's that they're summed up in Jesus. He leads us into the true tabernacle in heaven. He is the high priest of the church, and he is the sacrifice through whom we enter into God's presence. Jesus is our forerunner, as we talked about in the beginning. He has gone before us, and he's opened a new and living way into the inner sanctuary. So all that the Old Testament was looking forward to has been fulfilled in Jesus. It's not that it's necessarily been abolished, it's just been completed. It's found its proper end. So how are we to respond to all this in a personal manner? Well, the answer, in a word, is confidence. Concluding his argument, ten chapters now, the author says, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Chapter 10, verse 19. We have confidence. That is, we've been cleansed. This is so remarkable and almost beyond belief. We have been cleansed and consecrated by our high priest and the offering of himself to such an extent that we can enter the holy of holies without fear, into the very presence of God without shame or trembling or trepidation. We're no longer like Adam who heard God in the garden, heard him walking in the garden in the cool of the day and hid himself, he said, because I was afraid. 
The cause for fear and shame in our lives, namely our own sin, has been taken away. Jesus has sanctified us forever through his offering. Our sin no longer factors into the equation. Thus, the author says, Hebrews 10.22, we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Another translation uh, might be that of a bad conscience or a guilty conscience, as the NIV has it. In other words, that conscience of ours, which was formerly tormented by our sin, which in turn drove us from the presence of God, which in turn caused us to hide like Adam, has been laid to rest. It no longer compels us to flee from God's presence. We've been sprinkled, we've had our hearts sprinkled clean of an evil conscience. And instead, we can draw near to God with a sincere heart, with confidence to enter the most holy place. So we've been given in Jesus something that Israel could never even dream of. The high priest would go in, perform his duties, and he was immediately out. We have access to the most holy place. So now that we're somewhat familiar, excuse me, with the argument of Hebrews, see what's going on in Exodus, at least a little bit, I hope, I hope, you know, it's not the clearest picture, but it's there. See what's going on in Exodus, and then what the author of Hebrews is saying, how these things are all fulfilled in Christ. Now we can sort of take a step back and consider what this has to say about our worship and what we do here. And this is really important, and it's the first and most obvious thing. And it's to say that our worship is always mediated. Our worship is always mediated, meaning we cannot approach God in and of ourselves but only through the priesthood of Jesus. Not an earthly priest, not another man or woman, only the priesthood of Jesus. Now remember that the tabernacle, that in it, two essentially incompatible things came into close contact. The holiness of God and the unholiness of Israel, or rather all humanity. And the only way that people could approach God was through the mediation of priests. These men who were set apart for this specific duty of ministering in the tabernacle. That was the only way that they could approach God. Now, why? Why was it only through the priesthood? Well, because God consecrated the priests. That is, He made them holy. He set them apart from everyone else. And only they could perform divine worship in the tabernacle. They were a special class of people. And so a normal Israelite, again, could not draw near on his or her own. They couldn't offer up a sacrifice as they pleased. They couldn't um, enter into um, God's presence apart from a priest who would do that for them. So a priest was, you could think of it as a point of access to God. To get to God, you went through the priest. Now, the supreme example of this, as we've mentioned, is the high priest. He was consecrated to such a degree of holiness that he exceeded even the other priests. Now, upon his chest, and in his sort of priestly outfit, 
was much different than the other priests. The other priests just basically had, it was like a white linen sort of uh, getup. The high priest, his uh, outfit matched the tabernacle. Um, it, he, he, he looked as ornate as the tabernacle did. But anyway, the point is, um, upon his chest, there was something called the breastplate of judgment. And on it were these 12 beautiful stones that were, that were fixed upon it. And on each of those stones was inscribed one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so what this signified was that as the high priest entered into the presence of God in the most holy place, he took the people with him. All of Israel entered into God's presence through the priest. My favorite thing about his uniform was that on the top of his head, he had something of a crown, and it, on top was inscribed, Holiness to the Lord. And so he'd enter in on behalf of the people. All that he did, he did in their name. He was their representative. Now again, the point here is that the people had no access rather no independent access to God apart from the priesthood. He could only be approached through them. You think of the Psalms, right? David crying out, when will I appear before your presence? I'm out here in a, wander, or a, a, a waterless place. When can I come to your courts? When can I draw near to you where you are? Through the mediation, even the king of the priests. Now, because we don't have earthly priests who mediate our access to things above, right? Because we don't have um, a, a, a set-apart class of uh, sanctified priests who do this and sort of kind of mediate our access to God, this can be lost on us, uh, at least for Protestants, right? At least for us. It's easy to think that we can come before God on our own that we can simply offer up our worship and our sacrifices and our prayers to Him without a mediator, without a go-between. The reality is quite the opposite. Jesus' priestly mediation is the only basis upon which we can draw near to God. There is only one true high priest through whom and with whom we draw near to God. There is only one mediator between God and humanity. And there is only one offering that is truly acceptable to God, and it's not ours. Now, last week, the main thing that I tried to demonstrate, I said it in about five different ways, was that our assembly, what we do here, takes place in heaven. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, how is it that we could possibly have access to things above? That we could actually gather in the heavenly Jerusalem? Well, certainly not in ourselves. Not by way of our obedience. Not by way of our sacrifice. Rather, the author tells us, next slide please, Hebrews 9, verse 24. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, listen, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The priesthood, or excuse me, the high priest with his breastplate would enter into the most holy place for the people. 
on behalf of the people. Jesus enters into the true holy place for us. So it's only through the offering on the cross, that is the priesthood and mediation of Jesus, that we have any business being on the heavenly mountain or in the true tabernacle. And that is for us where worship has to begin. In the recognition that our offering in and of itself is not acceptable to God. That what we bring ultimately will not be received. But that being the case, God gives us Jesus to stand in our place, to render the obedience and the sacrifice that we cannot give. Jesus alone leads us into God's presence. And so the point I want to make regarding what we're doing here is, is this. If our assembly is something put together by us and for us, apart from the priesthood of Jesus, it has no significance whatsoever, at least in relationship to divine things. It might be an inspirational message. It might be a venue to hear beautiful music or an opportunity to see one another, but it's most definitely not divine worship. Apart from the mediation of Jesus, who alone grants us access into things above, what we're doing here just is another human endeavor. It remains fixed on earth. But through his mediation, if we truly acknowledge Jesus to be our great high priest, through whose offering we are given access into the Holy of Holies, then things change. Jesus leads us into the very presence of God where the river that is clear as crystal flows and where the tree of life is that never ceases to bear fruit. Now, I'm not sure how this ultimately look. I'm open to suggestions, but I want to find a way of building this truth into our service. That when we gather, the first thing that we do is acknowledge the priesthood of Jesus that it's in his name that any of this can happen, that it's through him that we can enter into God's presence. Because otherwise, what's the point? And that leads us to our second point, and that is Jesus not only mediates our worship, is he leads our worship. And I'll be quick here. In ancient Israel, the priests led every aspect of worship in the tabernacle. They sang the psalms, they played the instruments, they offered prayers, they shared the word, they received and dedicated offerings, they burned incense, and more and more. Before anything else, what a priest was, was a worshiper. Now Jesus has done away with the need for earthly priests because he is the true worshiper of God. And he is the true leader of our worship. Look at this remarkable passage. Next slide, please. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. The main point of what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Listen, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. So as our high priest, Jesus is called a minister in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle. In the Greek, that word minister is the word liturgos, and it comes from the word liturgia, which is translated worship. So liturgia is worship, and the liturgos is the leader of worship. When we come together, 
In corporate worship, we join Jesus, the true worshiper, whose offering of himself on the cross is forever pleasing and acceptable to God. Now, my favorite example of this is in chapter 2, where the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22, and he says, these are the words of Jesus. Next slide, please. Listen to what he says. He says, I will proclaim your name. This is Jesus to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus, our great high priest and the true minister, leads the congregation. That is the ecclesia. That's the word. Um, he leads the assembly in word and praise. He stands in our midst proclaiming God's name and singing his praises. So it's ultimately worship is not something we do as religious people. We offer something to God. True worship is the worship of Jesus. That's what's pleasing and acceptable to God. It's less a matter of our doing, the skillfulness of the music, the memorability of the sermon, the sincerity of the prayers, and it's more a matter of yielding to the worship of Jesus. He takes what is ours, our unacceptable offering, and he sanctifies it, and he gives it to the Father without spot or wrinkle. So whatever our worship is, it is our amen to the worship of Jesus. And just lastly, I'll tied up right now with this is that the third point is if the mediator, if Jesus is the mediator and the leader of our worship, then he is truly present to us when we assemble. Where two or three have gathered in my name, he himself says, I am there in their midst. Let me close with a word of